Let's take God's word together and turn to the New Testament book of Luke, chapter 15, if you would, please. And uh, we continue our journey studying this parable of the prodigal son, my favorite parable. And I don't know how many sermons we've covered so far, but we pick up now where we left off last week. If you remember, we considered last week the journey home, the direction headed home, and we spoke about how the natural response of a repentant heart is a deliberate and specific act of the will. And some people are almost afraid to even use the word will uh, because their theology does not permit it. But I'm not suggesting that man is just arbitrarily deciding when and as he desires all the different movements to and from God. But what I'm saying is that God does not ever bypass the will. God never puts a man's will aside, but rather he works in a man's will and makes a man hungry, desiring to be saved. And if tonight there's a desire in your heart to be saved, you can be sure that desire is not from Satan. Do you think God would try to tempt you to want to be saved? That Satan, pardon me, would try to tempt you to want to be saved? No, no, no. That comes from God. And we come to the next portion of our text in Luke chapter 15. Let's begin reading. Once again, we'll read through the parable beginning in verse 11. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, that's what we looked at last week. When he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Let's pray once again and ask for God's help. Father, as we open thy word, we pray that thy spirit would open our hearts. 
As we flip through the pages of thy word, we pray that thy spirit may begin to flip through the pages of our heart and mind. We might even sense and feel conviction as we consider our need of of a Savior. We pray for those who are lost tonight, those who still do not know what it is to have the burden of sin rolled away. Oh God, we pray in mercy, save souls this evening. For we ask it in Jesus Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. As you know, this is my favorite parable of all parables. But you cannot really fully understand this parable unless you read it in the context that it is written. And that includes the previous two parables. If you remember, this is one of three similar parables. The first parable at the beginning of chapter 15 is the parable of the lost sheep. And then after that is the parable of the lost coin. And then we come to this one, the prodigal son, which could be called the parable of the lost son. All three, it is Christ Jesus speaking, attempting to drive home a very important point. And that point was this, that Jesus Christ came for sinners not for the righteous. We find in verse number three, he spake this parable unto them saying, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. Isn't that encouraging? That the work of a seeking God is a work that will not be stopped until he finds the lost. And not only does he seek to find a loss, but the Bible says in verse 5, when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing, and when he cometh home. If you could put a title on this sermon tonight, it would be just that. When he cometh home. Salvation is all about God bringing home the lost sheep. It's all about God bringing home the lost coin and the lost son. That's what this is this evening. And we see clearly throughout these three parables that it is the father's desire to bring the lost sheep home. And that's where we find the prodigal this week. He's coming home. Would you look this way for a moment? Can I ask you tonight, are you at home tonight with the father? You might say, well, actually I'm here in a tent on a field in Oxford. No, I'm not talking physically I mean spiritually this evening, are you at home with God the Father? Are you at peace with the Father? And we begin to look at this particular point and we learn a few things from our prodigal. And the first thing we see in our text this evening is that the first step home is the step of repentance. The very first step home is the step of repentance. And would you look this way? Repentance is one of the most neglected doctrines being preached today or not being preached today. Our churches are filled with a lovey-dovey, mushy-gushy kind of a gospel that leaves out this very important doctrine of repentance. But we find all through the scriptures that repentance is an inseparable truth of the gospel. You do not have a full gospel without repentance. 
In Luke chapter 24, the Lord Jesus declaring to his disciples after he's ascended, arisen from the grave, about to ascend to the Father. If you remember, he says to his disciples in the very last chapter of Luke and verse 46, thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. That the gospel message is a message of repentance and remission of sins. Somebody once said it's like a coin, a two-sided coin. Faith and repentance. And unfortunately, repentance is the one side of the coin that is often neglected today. Salvation in Christ is a salvation from sin. Did you know that? Would you look here? Salvation is not just a bonus at the end of your life, a tag on. That if you are saved, then God gives you a bed in heaven. Sometimes I hear people say things like that at a funeral. May God give him a good bed in heaven. And they, they speak as if salvation is just really a little extra add-on at the end of one's life. No, no, no. Salvation is deliverance from sin. Not just the penalty of sin, but sin itself. We're told in Luke chapter 5, at the beginning of the same chapter, in verse number 32, listen to what the Lord Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to what? To repentance. The call of Jesus Christ is a call to repentance. Some people oftentimes speak about the call of God, but the call of God is a call out of sin to the Savior. Luke chapter 15, that we just read uh, the first parable or part of the first parable. But in verse 7, Jesus says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Over more, more than 99 just persons who have no need of repentance. I'm afraid we have reduced Christianity to some kind of a holy gathering on Sunday. And everybody thinks that Christianity is when people get together on Sunday, they dress up real nice, sing a few hymns, say their prayers, read a scripture, then they go home. That's not Christianity. Christianity uh, is when God gets a hold of a sinner's heart and so convicts them of that sin that they cannot rest until they turn away from it. That's repentance and that's salvation. Again, in verse 10, the parable of the lost coin. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in heaven in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. If we're preaching a gospel without repentance, there's no joy in heaven. No joy in heaven. If you claim to be saved, but yet you've never repented of your sin, you're deceiving yourself. If you're watching tonight or if you're visiting tonight and your typical church never preaches repentance, you better find a new one. Because repentance cannot be separated from the gospel. And if a church does not, or if a believer does not preach repentance, then they're not preaching the gospel. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 20, pardon me, in Acts chapter 3 and verse 26, we find Peter preaching. And he says, unto you first, God, speaking to the Jews, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you. And turning away every one of you from his iniquities. That's repentance. Turning us away from iniquities. This afternoon we had the privilege of watching two, two folks, two believers, follow God, follow Jesus Christ in baptism. 
And what they were declaring today, that they're no longer who they used to be, that Christ has washed away their sins and they no longer wish to live in that sin, but instead to follow the Savior. In Acts 11, verse number 18, we find very similarly, when they heard these things, when the council in Jerusalem heard these things about the gospel going to the Gentiles, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Repentance brings life. Do you know what some people say? Oh, you can't talk too much about sin. And you can't talk too much about repentance because that'll put people off. No, no, no. Let me tell you what that does. It leads to life. Repentance unto life. Acts chapter 20 and verse number 21. Again, we read very plainly, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a two-sided coin of the gospel. Repentance toward God, faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'd like to come home tonight, if you'd like to get right with God tonight, the first step is the step of repentance. And the prodigal son had a lot of time to think about it, didn't he? Every day when he was slopping with the pigs, with the hogs, when he was feeding the swine, every day when he was alone, he didn't have a mobile phone to distract his thinking. We live in a very noisy society, don't we? And if the television isn't on, the radio is on, and if that isn't on, then some other device is on, and we never allow ourselves time to think. And I believe that's an intentional attack from Satan. I believe that Satan is intentionally trying to keep us from thinking too much about spiritual things. And so we're constantly distracted. Constantly distracted. But we're told this young man began to think. We looked last week at how he came to himself. The Bible says in verse 17, he came to himself and said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? He recognized he was dying. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned. Two things. He recognized where his sin was taking him and he recognized that if he was ever going to get right, he needed to confess. Confess. He was convinced of his foolishness. Convinced of the foolishness of the course that he had taken. Would you look here tonight? Are you convinced that the life you've lived is utterly foolish? You'll never be saved unless you're willing to admit that. As long as you still look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm really not that bad. I'm not as bad as that chap, or I'm not as bad as that lassie. As long as you think you're not that bad, you'll never come to repentance. But if you're willing and able, like this young man, to say, I have sinned. He acknowledged his foolishness, but he also acknowledged his inherent wickedness. Now, do you know what it takes... A lot for a man to admit that. It takes a work of grace for a man or a woman to be willing to acknowledge before God, I am inherently wicked. You know what the world says? The world says that man is inherently good and occasionally wicked. The Bible says man is inherently wicked and occasionally does an act that looks good. 
until you're willing to own up to the reality of your own heart, there'll be no coming home. Very often when God allows us to taste the fruit of our own conduct, the fruit of our own behavior, then we become convinced of the evil of our ways. And that's sometimes how God brings a man to repentance. He brings him to a famine. And when we begin to compare our ingratitude for all that God has done and all that God has given, when we begin to compare our ingratitude and our persistent wickedness, our persistent willful, willfulness and waywardness, if you can begin to compare that with the goodness and faithfulness of God, the Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. The Bible says when we begin to recognize, hold on, look at the way that I've lived my life and God still has not squashed me. Look at the way I've been living and God still is not, He has chosen, God has chosen mercifully not to cast me into hell. He's a good God. He's a gracious God. And this is how He begins to turn the prodigal home. The first word out of the prodigal's mouth when he gets home, he's, he's preparing, isn't he? Making up a speech, working on his words, memorizing, going over it, over and over. And in fact, when he actually gets to the father, he begins to let out his well-rehearsed speech. And by the way, he's right in the first half of it. But the very first word to the father is a word of confession. He didn't have small talk, did he? He didn't say, hey, father, daddy, how you been? It's been a long time. How's the business? How's the farm? How's everything been since I... No, no, no. No small talk. No small talk. The very first word out of his mouth, I imagine him on his knees before his father. Very first words. Father, I have sinned. That's repentance. Father, I have sinned. And it's interesting that he acknowledges that his sin is first directed towards heaven. Did you see that? Father, I have sinned against heaven. David understood that. We know the story of King David and his fall. It's recorded for us in Scripture, but we also we find the heart of David being turned back to God in Psalm 51. And he says in verse number 3, I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. I wonder tonight, have you acknowledged your sin? My sin is always before me. I can't get away from it. I can't stop thinking about it, David says. And not only that, but then he says in verse 4, Against thee and thee only have I sinned. You think about that? Against thee and thee only have I sinned. It's a very interesting thought that the sin that David committed with Bathsheba and against Uriah, David was brought to the place where he recognized that that sin was preeminently against God. And that's where confession must begin. But it doesn't stop there. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. He sinned against his father too. There may be this evening that there is some sin that you have committed against someone else that needs to be dealt with. Are you repentant? True repentance leads to confession. 
confession to God and confession where needed to man. Think about it. I don't believe there have been some movements that have tried to insist that you needed to get up publicly and confess all of your sins before everybody. I don't believe that is what we find in Scripture. There are other movements that say if you confess your sin to a, a man of the cloth, that he can absolve your sin and all will be well. No. We have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And our confession ought to be preeminently to God and then to those that we have sinned against. If I have sinned against my brother Seth, and I've hurt him or spoken foolishly after making it right with God, I must go to him and make it right. But let me encourage you with the next thing we see in our text, and that is the Father's grace. Here comes the young man. The Bible says in verse 20, he arose and came to his father. We talked about last week how the journey of salvation is not to heaven. Don't ever use heaven as a point of manipulation to try to get somebody saved. That's a false gospel. If you die today, do you want to go to heaven or hell? That's the most ridiculous question to ask on earth. Uh, salvation is more than about going to heaven. Salvation is about knowing God. Being right with God. And I believe that half the world would gladly go to heaven if they didn't have to be right with God. The true salvation isn't about going to heaven, it's about being right with God. Heaven is only heaven because that's where God is. And we find in this portion he arises and goes to his father. That's who he's looking for. He's not looking for a paycheck or a job. He's not looking for some fringe benefit. He's looking for the father because he wants to make it right with his father. He arose and came to his father. But look this, I love, I love this next expression. But when he was yet a great way off. Would you look here this evening? After you and I, after the prodigal, have done our best. After we decide, you know what? I've got to get right with God. I need to be saved. After we've done our best, after we tie our shoe straps together and start heading home, at best, we are still a great way off. Do you know that? We sometimes think, well, hey, you know, the moment somebody says, you know what, I, I think I'm ready to be saved. We think that all of a sudden, bang, there they're going to be. But the truth is, no matter how much you, how much you plan and work and talk, you're still a long way away. It's very interesting to me that this, the point of salvation for this young man, was not because he worked his way back to his father and marched his way and hiked his way back to the father, but rather his father came to him. The utmost power of the human will will never get us close enough. The utmost power of man's determination at best keeps us afar off. All we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God all that we think we can do still leaves us yet a great way off. I'm reminded of what the psalmist said. Psalm 119 and verse 113 says, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. The psalmist says, I hate vain, empty thoughts. I hate it. He understood that there's something vain about man 
who says, I'm going to get myself to God. I'm going to pick myself up by my bootstraps and work my way to God. I'm going to do this. And the psalmist said, you know what? I'm sick of vain thoughts, but I love God's word because his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Amazing. His thoughts. I love this. When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. Aren't you glad the Father sees us when we're still a long way away? Aren't you glad that the Father sees us when we are a great way off? Aren't you glad that it, that God doesn't wait for us to get back to the Father's house before we're saved? None of us would ever make it. We'd never make it. And make no mistake about it, the Father saw the whole thing. Your heavenly Father sees it all. He knows our thoughts and He knows our words. And it... it makes me tremble to think he knows our sin. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon, the wisest man apart from Jesus to ever live, says that God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. He sees it, but he also sees when we repent. He also sees when the heart is broken And when we are repentant, and when the father sees that a wayward child or a or a sinning child, when the father sees that one has come to repentance, the Bible says he ran. He ran. Now, why did the father run? We've talked about this before in previous sermons, but many people say that a man of that age and of that stature would never be caught running. It was a disgrace. In that culture. In fact, in, in order to be able to run, he'd have to pull up his robes and, and make bare his legs, showing his legs. You didn't do that. That was a disgrace. The father didn't really care. Hiked up his robe and ran because he recognized that if he didn't run to his son, his son would never, ever make it home. We also recognize that in that culture, If a young man disgraced the father like this young man did, and he ever dared show his face again, back at the town or village, he'd be stoned to death before he ever got home. But the Bible says, when the father sees a change of heart and a change of mind, he runs. And I love this because the scriptures say he ran, he had compassion when his father saw him, and had compassion, and he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, I remind you, here's a young man who's been living with pigs, had rags on. He was absolutely skin and bones because he was starving. And the father did not wait for him to get cleaned up. The father didn't wait for him to get a shower, a bath, to get more presentable clothes on. The father put his arms around him that very moment. And kissed him. That was the moment he was brought home. That was the moment he was saved. And tonight, the moment the father puts his arms around you is the moment you're saved. And you may not be what you ought to be. You may not look outwardly the way you should look outwardly. You may still have sins you struggle with. You may still have the stains of sin in your life. But if he puts his arms around you and places his loving lips upon your cheek to kiss you, you're his. You're safe. That's exactly what happened here. Still dirty, but saved. 
still clothed improperly, but saved. And I love what he says next. The son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Now, the rest of his speech went like this. Make me as one of thy hired servants. But before we could ever say it, his father stopped him. I was convicted while thinking about this. I wonder how many times the father wants to stop our prayers. I don't mean by that he didn't want you to pray, but I wonder how many times we just ramble and babble and say things that don't need to be said. We make all sorts of promises and oaths and vows. I wonder if the father were present in the room when we were praying. I wonder if he put his hand up like he did to that son that day and stopped him in the middle. Who, who are we fooling? You're not fooling God when you pray. He stopped in midway his prayer. And look what he says. The scriptures say in verse Number 22, the father said to his servants, bring forth the best. Think about that for a moment. Here is a son who has utterly disgraced the father. Here is a son who has wasted his inheritance on riotous living. He's made a mockery of the father. He's lived a wicked life. And he comes crawling home and his father, instead of raising the hand in anger to give him what he deserves, says, bring me the best for my son. Isn't that an amazing thought? We, we sometimes live thinking something other, thinking something different of our God. We sometimes think that our God is an austere man. Like you remember the one man in the parable of the talents. Who took his talent and he hid it. He said, I knew that you were an austere God. You're a hard God. Well, the truth is you don't know God. Because what we find here is that when a sinner comes to repentance, God's not looking to whack them over the head with a big stick to give them some dunce cap to wear for the rest of the evening or the rest of the week. He's not looking to write a scarlet letter on his jacket so that everybody knows how wicked and disgraceful he is. He says, bring the best. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of living in the rags of this world. I'd rather have God's best. It's an amazing thought that God takes our worst and gives us his best. God takes from off of us our worst, our sin, our shame, our guilt, and he gives us his best. And the Bible says he gives three things. He gives, bring, the scriptures say, bring forth the best robe. Now, the young man was in no condition and he was not fit to be recognized or to be sat with the father. The way that he turned up, the way that he returned, he was not qualified. He was he was in no condition to sit next to God. By the way, this ought to teach you and I a very big lesson. You ought to take off your lens of criticism and judgment. The next time you look down your long spiritual critical nose at a, at a sinner who comes to repentance... You ought to take those glasses off and recognize that none of us are fit to sit with God. Not one of us will ever be fit to sit with God because of who we are and what we've done. The only thing that makes us qualified to sit at the Father's table is His best robe. And it ain't your robe, it's His. It's not your righteousness, but it's His. 
It's not because you were a good man or you were a good woman and you didn't tell lies. You didn't steal and you were faithful. No, no, no. It's not because of you. It's because of him. And if you try to wear any other robe when you stand on judgment day, if you try to put any other robe on top of your clothes, you will be cast into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Get, get rid of your rags and pick up his robe. His robe of righteousness. I love this thought. I really love this thought. That when we put on his robe, his best robe, you know what that does? That covers our rags. It covers our rags. His robe, his righteousness covers all my sin. So that people can't see what I looked like just a few minutes ago. An amazing principle that is found from the beginning of Scripture right the way through. We read it in Acts chapter 3 in that same sermon that we looked at earlier about repentance. In Acts 3 in verse number 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Aren't you thankful that God blots our sins out? Do you know how embarrassed we would be if we had to wear our sins outwardly when we approach the judgment seat of Christ. But he's blotted out our sins. He's blotted them out. It's found in the Old Testament as well. There are a multitude of verses. I'll give you one. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. But there are many, many. Even I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. Verses like this give me much hope and comfort. He chooses to remember them no more. I was reading uh, one uh, one author on this subject and he made mention that the robe of righteousness, his best robe, is a robe that can be worn anywhere. Now the robe, the rags that the, that the prodigal had on, the rags that you and I have on until we come to Christ, can only be worn, really can only be worn in a pig pen. But the robe of righteousness, God's robe, can be worn on all occasions. When you go to work, when you go to the shop, when you're at home, when you go to feed the pigs, His robe can be worn on every occasion. It is sufficient and never need to be taken off. He wasn't just given a robe, but the scriptures say he was given a ring and shoes. Let's look at the shoes first. Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Would you look here? Do you know what that tells me? He didn't even have shoes on. He didn't even have shoes. Well, why did he give him shoes? Well, of course, your feet must be throbbing, walking over all the stones and stubbing your toes along the way. But the father said, give him some shoes, please. It's an amazing thing to me that God doesn't take the stones out of the way. Instead, he gives the shoes so we can walk on top of them. God may not take your problems away, but he'll give you a pair of shoes strong enough that you can walk on top of your problems. He may not remove all the obstacles out of your way, but he'll give you shoes that are strong enough, shoes of brass and iron, strong enough that they'll never wear out and you can walk on top of all of your problems and all of your trials and tribulations. Put some shoes on his feet. I want to talk about the ring for a second. The scriptures say those three things bring forth the best robe, 
and put it on him and put a ring on his hand. Now think with me for a moment. Would you look this way? There's a couple of things to think about when considering a ring. Many people have said, well, the ring is a symbol of authority. And there is an application there. Jesus said, as the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. We have authority. Christ said, I give you authority. I give you power over a certain list of things. When we are accepted into the beloved, when we are acknowledged, when we are born again, we are given the ring of God's authority. Amazing thought and principle. We do not have to give in to temptation. You do not have to be a servant to sin because you have the authority of Almighty God. You can agree together and move mountains. But not only that, one commentator said that the ring was a symbol of luxury. Now think with me. I'm, don't Hold on, I'm not going to preach a prosperity gospel, but think for a second with me. Isn't it sweet that God would grant unto us extras? Things that you don't really need, but because He loves you. I read a story not long ago of Charles Spurgeon's wife, Mrs. Susanna Spurgeon. Many of you know that shortly after he and she and Mrs. Spurgeon were, Mr. Spurgeon were married, that she became an invalid. And she hated the fact that she couldn't help her husband more. And uh, she became a prayer warrior. And she would test God and pray about certain things. And she got it in her mind one day that she wanted a canary, a little bird. So Mrs. Spurgeon, they had enough money, they could have easily bought ten birds. But she said, no, I'm going to pray and see if my father will give it to me. And Mrs. Spurgeon, the great Mr. Spurgeon's wife, began to pray that God would give her a little canary. After days, weeks, I don't know how long, a parcel, a package, not a parcel, but some sort of a delivery item arrived, crate arrived at the front door of their home, and you can guess what was inside but a canary. She told no one, not even her husband, about her wish to have this little bird. When the bird arrived, she began to weep with joy, and she told her husband, Mr. Charles Spurgeon, of what God had done, and Mr. Spurgeon smiled, and and in his own cheeky, humorous little way, he said, well, you must be one of God's spoiled children. You always get what you ask for. Now, you think about that. I love to give my children what they ask for. I like to do that. I like to give my children things that they do not necessarily need. I enjoy giving nice things to my children. Because I can. How much more, if that's the way we feel about our children, how much more does our Father in Heaven like to give unto us good things? What a sweet thought. I'm reminded of the Song of Solomon. We had a series of study through that book quite some time ago, and you may remember it. But the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, and verse number 4. She, the bride, a picture of the church, writes, He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. He brought me to the banqueting house, a feast because he loves me. He gave me a multitude of blessings. I remind you, here is a man who had disgraced his father. He didn't deserve a ring. He didn't deserve anything. But he was brought to the banqueting house of the Father's love. And the Bible says, bring hither the fatted calf 
and kill it. He fed him. Do you know the first thing that you notice about a newborn child of God? The first thing you notice about a Christian who has been born again is that there's a hunger, isn't there? I love to see someone who's genuinely converted, genuinely born again. There's an insatiable hunger for the word. They can't get enough of the word. They can't get enough of that. They want to be at every meeting. That's when you know someone has genuinely been born again, when they're hungry for the word. None of this business, well, they said a prayer, but you never ever see them again. They never come to a church, not interested in reading the word. No, no, genuine conversion. There's a hunger and God feeds that hunger. The father is happy to feed that hunger. And the Bible says, bring hither the fatted calf, the best calf, and kill it and let us eat and be merry. He began to be merry. That's what happens when you come home to the father. You begin to be merry. That's what happens when a soul is saved. You begin to be merry. And the Bible doesn't say that they ever stopped. Isn't that an interesting thought? Look here. The Bible doesn't say that they ever stopped being merry. Because there's joy in the Father's house. That doesn't mean you won't have troubles and difficulties. But it does mean that if you dwell and abide with the Father in His house, there'll always be joy. But if you step out of His house, some of us have done that. Some of us tonight have wandered away from the Father. And if you wander away from the Father's house, that joy and merriment that comes from the presence of the Father is missing. It's gone. And you need to come home. You need to come home. Put on His robe of righteousness. You need to let Him give you shoes. You need to let Him put a ring on your hand and feed your hungry soul. Come home. Come home tonight. I wonder this evening, have you come home? Maybe tonight you're lost. I have one word to you. Come. Come home. While you still can. Come home today. While the Father's watching. Are you repentant of your sins? Do your sins grieve you? Do you hate your sins? That's a good sign. Come home. And he'll run. Throw his arms around you. Kiss you. And bring the best for you. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing our final hymn. Father, we do pray that tonight we might see many prodigals coming home. We pray for the lost sheep, those who have never yet been saved. Oh, please, Father, save their souls. Bring them to repentance, Lord. I pray for thy children tonight, each one of us. We have already tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Father, we pray, if we be wandering away, if we've stepped out of the Father's house, bring us home, Father. Bring us home to Thee, that we might begin to be merry and have our hungry souls filled again. We commit these things to Thee in Jesus Christ's name.